Sharice is uh, serving up some out of this world announcements, I guess. And uh, uh, if you're able to, uh, the VBS this meeting, uh, at the meeting of VBS right after this service, we have lunch for you as well, and so you can be a part of that ministry. Uh, as we kind of prepare our hearts uh, to hear God's word, um, I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew. It's the seventh chapter. And just uh, listen to uh, what Jesus reminds us. He says, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. The small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Whew. Some interesting words to, to reflect on this morning. And, and, and really what Jesus is starting to drive at is sort of our experience with the truth, right? And so we have uh, began a sermon series a couple of Sundays ago. We had a guest visiting us, and, and we've been focusing together on what is truth, and when we ask that question, you know, it should lead us into this space of trying to really discern what, you know, make meaning of the world. What does the world mean? What are our presuppositions about what is meaningful? And when we ask what is truth, we also, I feel like, we have to ask, what is at stake? Meaning, what happens if there is no truth? What does it mean? Because things are kind of interesting. Like, we, we went from sort of an understood prepositional truth in our world where, where people, to a large degree, um, seemingly agree that like, there was some sort of reality that we could all plant our flag in, some sort of objective truth that we could all experience and see. And, and now we don't really have that same sort of energy in the world. It's, it's more about perspective. Um, you have your perspective, and I have mine. And our different perspectives can be fine. We can live in those worlds. And, and so what happens now is that now when we engage in like civil discourse and conversations about what is meaningful in the world, what's important in the world, we're actually not all talking about the same thing. Because we have different, we can say truths, but we have different perspectives, different presuppositions. And so even conversations are getting complicated because there's not common language anymore or common understanding, or at least there's less. And so this is really, really challenging, and, and it seems that this has been coming for a while, and we've been experiencing it to varying degrees, and it's, it's posed a lot of questions as we engage in conversations about a number of things in this world. And so what is truth? One of the things that people tend to do, and this is because it's very much a human nature kind of thing, is that when they're encountered with something that is 
told to be true. Like, this is, this is reality. And it doesn't set well with you. You want to flee from it. You want to get out from under it. And so in many ways, for many of us and many people, um, we've been trying to get God off our backs. Because when you encounter a truth that God proclaims, or if you're reading scripture and you, and you encounter something that makes you uncomfortable, there's a part of you that wants it not to be uncomfortable. And so like if you read the Bible, if you read scripture, if you reflect on anything in the faith and there's never a moment that you feel uncomfortable, I'm going to probably say you're not reading it right or at all because there's a lot of stuff in there that should sort of weigh on you or, or cause you to ask questions. Even just this passage, I mean, narrow is the road. Am I on that road? If I say, Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name, will he say, I don't know you? I mean, these are the kinds of questions that should evoke. But many times, I think when things get uncomfortable, we want to slide the conversation over into a place where we don't have to worry about it, where things are more comfortable. And this is nothing new. Like, this is not new at all. This happened in the beginning, and this is just what I want to illustrate, is this is human nature. It began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, imagine Adam and Eve walking through the garden. Basically, everything was available to them. Everything was free, and there was only one thing that they could not do, and that was to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they looked at it day in and day out, and of course, what did they want? The one thing they couldn't have or shouldn't have. It's like that red button that says, do not push. You just want to push it. So they just needed some reason some justification, something to change for them, just enough to open the door for them so they felt okay eating from this tree. And so in comes the serpent. And here's all it took. He didn't deny God. He didn't deny a lot of things that are true. He just raised one question. Did God really say? That's it. And did God really say you can't do this? I mean, surely your God won't kill you. He loves you, right? Oh, yeah, you're right, I think. I guess we'll eat from that tree. <laughs> that one line opened up a world of possibility for them to do something and maybe not feel bad about it. Plausible deniability, <laughs> right? And that's exactly what happened. God shows up and they start pointing fingers and, and all the, the whole thing. But really, a, a lot of us make that same move. We, we encounter things that um, we would say are truth or are meant for us. And when it makes us uncomfortable or we, we don't want to do it or we feel threatened by it or it doesn't sit right with us, we make that same shift. It's almost like we're looking for some reason that we so we don't have to do it, so we don't have to pay attention to it. So we, we, we search, we, we stay open to these things. And so many of us then sometimes are gravitating towards things that may sound true and reasonable, but they're just slightly shifted off of the truth to bring us relief. It's very subtle. And again, like most of the things we experience now are not new things. I think this is important. 
I mean, I've been going to all these uh, conferences this month, and, and one of the things that uh, has been bubbling up in all these conferences is how seemingly uh, COVID has accelerated uh, the rate of change, not only in our culture, but even within churches and the way people interact in spaces of worship and in faith. And they're saying that a lot of things that we're seeing, we were expecting to happen, um, but we were thinking we had like 50 more years, and, and now we don't. It's like happening now. And so people are scrambling, church leaders are scrambling. They're like, how do we even engage culture? How do we talk about things that we believe are true? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the more I sat with these conversations and these, these speakers, the more it just kind of dawned on me that, that yes, things are moving at a quick pace. Things are changing very quickly. That is true, <laughs> objectively true. But what is not true is that it's new. The things we're experiencing now are not new. They're just repackaged and relabeled and the same things the churches have talked about and discussed and debated forever. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. For for example, in the early church there was a guy by the name of Marcion. And one of the struggles with truth that he had is How can you have a God of the Old Testament who seems merciless and angry and is willing to send people to war to kill other people, and then you come to Jesus in the New Testament who is loving and forgiving and and full of grace? It sounds like two different gods. This is not a new question. It's a question people ask now. It's a question people ask then. And so what was Marcion's solution? Well, he, he couldn't reconcile what he experienced in the Old Testament with the New Testament, so he published something called the Marcion Bible. And what the Marcion Bible was is he got rid of the Old Testament, he got rid of all the Gospels except for Luke, which he redacted, he reduced, and he got rid of many of the letters of Paul. Ta-da! Tension relieved. And so not only was he trying to like, address that uncomfortableness as he struggled through the Scripture, and he provided a solution, but he was also reacting to the culture of his time. His justification for doing this was not only to address that question, but he said, literally, that he wanted to do it to get rid of the Jewish corruption and open up the Bible to the mysteries of the gospel. That is, he wanted to get rid of the, the unfaithful Jewish influence of the scripture It's just ridiculous to say this out loud. Um, To open up the mysteries of the Bible. And guess what? As insensitive and crazy as that sounds, it was super popular. People loved not liking Jews. And even Martin Luther wrote and published anti-Semitic things during this time. It was like in vogue. And so it seemed reasonable. Culture supported it. It resolved attention. Here we go. But the same thing happens today. It's, it, we do the same thing now. For example, one of the things that people really struggle with are the writings of Paul now, because he says some things that don't kind of seem to fit within our culture and seem sort of maybe offensive or off, and, and we don't know what to do with it always. And so there's a group of people, they talk about this in theology circles. You'll see stuff online sometimes. But Paul is basically a misogynist. He hates women. And because of this, canceled like let's just get rid of him like why why would we like he's obviously 
um, oppressed by his culture, and we shouldn't read what he says and apply it to us. And so in many ways, people are kind of making subtle moves just like Marcy. And it's like, well, if something doesn't really make sense, or if we can't reconcile it, um, then we're just going to get rid of it. Same thing with culture. Culture um, changes our perception of things. And, and we, we take our perspective and what's going on in our culture, and we read it back into Scripture and say, well, something's off with Scripture, not with us. We're right. And so you see this happen in a lot of ways. In Second uh, Peter, Peter warns about, uh, he's warning us about this. He's, he says that uh, people are going to give themselves over to the, their sensuality, sensuality and passions. Like they're going to forsake uh, the writings of God and follow false, pro- false prophets to feel good about themselves. And so there are a lot of challenges to translation of Scripture and understanding of Scripture now that deal with human sexuality and behavior because it, it's uncomfortable And so what do we do? We just get rid of the cultural corruptions, which are all over the Bible. They don't fit into our culture. So let's get rid of it. You see, this is not new. This was happening early in church history. It's happening now in church history. It's just repackaged and being delivered differently. Another uh, common early church sort of heresy at the time was uh, something called antinomianism. And I use these big words so that you know I'm smart, right? Uh, but the antinomianists, uh, the struggle that they were dealing with is they didn't quite know how to reconcile the fact that we had a loving and forgiving God who says that we're free in him, free from the law, but then also seemingly scripture seems to say you should follow the law. Like, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then later, you know, you're, you're free from this. You're free in Christ. And so what, what did they do with it? Well, they started pushing in this idea that only non-Christians are under the law, and, and Christians are not. So if you were not a Christian, you had to follow the Ten Commandments or you were in trouble. If you are a Christian, do what you want, because Jesus is there. It's like this free hall pass to kind of do things and not worry about it. And so it really kind of disrupted some of the understanding of what grace is and what our role in following Jesus is. But it was popular. Because why not? If there's grace, then have fun. Do what you want. We have a a modern twist to this. Same thing, same idea, just labeled a little bit differently. All of Scripture is redacted and reduced essentially down to one idea, and it's simply love. So we will say, yeah, God is love. Scripture says God is love. But then the way we talk about it, we're actually making love God. Love becomes God. That is, love becomes the highest ethic. And so it doesn't matter if it's in agreement with Scripture or not, because the question isn't, did God say, did God really say this? The question is, is this the most loving thing? Is this love? Same kind of idea. We can do a lot of things under the umbrella of love. And so this is why Jesus, I think in Matthew chapter 7, he says, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. 
Because here's the thing. All these ideas, getting rid of Paul, getting rid of certain uncomfortable, contextual, cultural things, uh, reducing the gospel down to, to love, which, which we tend to view as what feels good for ourselves when Scripture actually teaches love is about like not caring about yourself and, and caring more about others. We make these shifts, and we do it all in the name of Christ. That's what's confusing. As everyone's saying this, and they're saying it's the most faithful way to follow Jesus. And so if someone's wrong, because Jesus is going to say, yeah, yeah, you're saying things in my name, but I actually, we don't have a relationship. You don't actually know me, and I don't know you. One of the things that one of the conferences I went to, uh, a woman was kind of talking about the transitions of church over history and time, of God's people over history and time. And she said something that just sort of stuck with me, and I've been just muddling on it. She said in the Old Testament, you had many gods and many wives, and God was really trying to move his people into faithfulness, and, and we moved into, and even Jesus begins to speak this way, to one God and one wife. And now, as we move forward in culture, um, we have no God and no wife. And it's true. Like, I mean, I've had, I've had conversations with my wife thinking about my own kids, and I'm like, well, will they even get married? Is that a thing anymore? Do you do that? And so just the dynamics of things have shifted. And this is what I think creates anxiety, is that on some level we're experiencing it maybe for the first time even though it's been around in varying ways for all time. And there's other things that are happening that are interesting, like that I think really challenge us. And like for example, um, Oprah can release a candle and say light the candle and think good thoughts, project good energy into the universe. And, and some people in the church are like, oh, that drives me crazy, Oprah your new age shenanigans, right? Or you, you know, what's becoming really popular now, um, I mean, you're, if you have an Apple Watch, it does it. Um, there's a lot of apps for this now, and there's a lot of research into this about breath work and breathing and synchronized breathing and, and certain things that you can do that have been shown to, to sort of like lengthen your telomeres and reduce stress and anxiety. And so breath work and singing sort of improve health, and they're, they're talking about this in like this new and exciting way. And, and when I hear about Oprah talking about lighting candles and projecting good thoughts, and when I hear about breathing and singing for health, I think this is not new. Like, why is the church threatened by this? Because we invented this. It, good thoughts, lighting candles and saying good thoughts, it's prayer, it's church. It's breathing in unison, is singing in unison, it's church. So we shouldn't get mad at it, we should take credit for it. Like, way to go, Oprah, you discovered something that's been around forever. But what this shows me is that the church has failed in teaching the traditional habits, the spiritual practices that have been around for, for thousands of years. We haven't faithfully talked about things that have always been a part of the faith. And we've lost it in part 
and, and this is not a commentary on modern or traditional, but like some of those elements kind of get lost, you know? But it's always been there. And so we have nothing to be afraid of. I mean, it's tempting to, to give up or to give in or to get discouraged, but there's nothing new. And so in the realm of truth, I see this as an invitation and a challenge and a reminder. It's an invitation, I think, for us to not be threatened and to not be afraid of what's happening in the world. I think it's actually an invitation to just engage with people. Because we have truth, and actually they have truth too. We just need to reframe it, remind them that, like, you're not special. <laughs> this has been around forever. Right? We don't have to treat them like an enemy, just like a misinformed friend. <laughs> you see, God is the same yesterday and forever, and sin is the same yesterday and forever. Nothing's different. But we know sin has been defeated in Christ. So do not be afraid. I see it as a, a challenge, and the challenge for us is actually to get with it. Like, how is it that we've given up what has been ours to other people so easily? Why can't we own the traditions of the church? Incense is not just a Buddhist thing <laughs> or a yoga thing. I think it's a challenge for us just to recognize and acknowledge that there's a lot of history that, that maybe we need to revisit, that we need to own and, and be proud of, integrate into whatever we do. It's also a challenge, I think, for us to be aware of what we actually believe to be true. Like we need to actually maybe know the scripture. We need to actually kind of understand better what's really going on because then, you know, it's, it's harder for someone to say, did God really say, if you actually know what he said, <laughs> to be able to address it or understand their perspective or, or come at it from a different angle. So it's an opportunity for us to grow, be more responsible for our own faith, faithfulness. And it's a reminder. Like it says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's, it's a reminder, really, that even though sometimes things feel like they're changing rapidly and everything that's happening has never happened before, it has so happened before. It just was called something different. And the solution is still the same. It's seeing ourselves and the sin and the brokenness of the world and acknowledging that it's easy to move away from truth. It's easy to lose our sight. But in the midst of it, God is there in Christ. Sin has always been present, but God's grace has always been present too. So all we do is look to him and have no fear and trust in his mercy and grace because sin is defeated ultimately in him.
And that is the truth. And so we rest on the truth of who Jesus is and we move towards him in grace and mercy. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.